This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. Yes, good afternoon everyone. It isn't too often these days amongst churches to hear the book of Genesis being referred to. Many churches who claim to base their teachings on the words of Jesus Christ, they don't really place a great emphasis or, or importance on the book of Genesis. Genesis is generally widely seen as a collection of legends or myths and therefore does tend to be disregarded by many people, not just by those who do not have a religious conviction, but sadly by some who do as well. In fact, it's not only Genesis itself that's often dismissed, it's also the other books of the Old Testament. And so for many of those denominations today, only the New Testament holds an irrelevance for them, and even though it might only even then it might only be parts of the four gospels. Well, let's just re- look again then at that reading that uh, our president has just read for us from uh, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 24. Because this passage here shows us everything really that Jesus teaches in kind of a succinct way. And, and everything that he believes is basically based firmly on the Old Testament. Now after Jesus had been raised from the dead he met two of his disciples here but as they talked with him those two disciples didn't actually recognise him and, and what is clear though is that they had not been prepared for the events that had just occurred those events that had led up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ neither had those disciples expected that God would raise Jesus from the dead And yet, the answer Jesus gave to these two disciples showed that actually they should have understood those things. Let's look at verse 25 again. Then Jesus said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So, he showed them then from the writings of Moses and the prophets, the things that spoke about himself. And the first five books of the Old Testament are the writings of Moses, so that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. And Jesus placed, placed great importance on, these, on those things and on all the Old Testament writings. In fact, belief in the writings of Moses and the prophets is essential to understand really what Jesus Christ is all about. And the gospel message has its origins firmly rooted in Genesis. In fact, we only have to look to the very first verse of the New Testament to see this. Let's go then to Matthew's Gospel which is the first book of the New Testament, and we can see the essential connection here with 
not just the Old Testament, but with, but with Genesis in particular. Now, Matthew's Gospel opens with an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, in those very first few words of the New Testament, we have this direct link back to Genesis. Because that's where we read of Abraham and God's purpose with that man Abraham he's a very significant Bible character is Abraham and we find the account of his life starting from the time when God called him out of his native land which was Ur of the Chaldees that's in Genesis chapter 12 right to the point when he dies in chapter 25 of Genesis so it's quite a section of the book of Genesis but we see here then from the start of the New Testament we have this line of descent that goes from Abraham down to Jesus Christ. And so that verse emphasises two important forefathers of Jesus. And then from verse 2 down to verse 16 of chapter 1 of Matthew is the full genealogy given there. But Matthew in his gospel is, is showing that the descent of Jesus Christ which goes back to Abraham that's essential for us to, uh, to help us to understand who Jesus is. So if, if we do want to understand this man Jesus Christ, what he's all about, we really cannot do that without understanding who Abraham was and knowing of God's dealings with that man. Because so many of uh, the teachings of the Bible come, come from there. So Abraham and Jesus Christ are linked together in God's purpose and that becomes more and more apparent throughout the New Testament in fact uh, as the writers of the New Testament draw out the things concerning Abraham and in fact what we could ask well what did Jesus have to say about Abraham well we'll turn on a few pages to chapter 8 of Matthew and we see that Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel and it's in that particular context that Jesus referred to him here now at the time of Jesus Christ Israel was under the rule of Rome the Roman Empire however Rome allowed Israel to exist obviously as a nation in their own land and they were also allowed to practice their own religion uh, so they had uh, their temple and so forth now I just wanted to mention that because here uh, we're introduced to a particular Roman centurion obviously stationed in the land of Israel at that time and this centurion came to Jesus in verse 6 of chapter 8 and he said Lord my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented and Jesus saith unto him I will come and heal him the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marvelled and said to them that followed, 
Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Now that particular man, the centurion, was a man who Jesus said had a great faith in God. Because he believed that Jesus didn't actually need to go to his house to heal the servant. But he believed that Jesus only needed to utter the words and the power of God that was vested in Jesus. That that power would then heal his servant. And that reaction that came from Jesus to that faith shows that it was actually very rare indeed to find faith as great as that. Even amongst the nation of God, Israel. But it's what Jesus then says uh, that we just want to focus on in verse 11 now. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus hadn't found so great faith in Israel itself as he had done in this particular man who was a non-Jew, a Gentile. Now there's a, a number of points though that come out of this. Which are uh, uh, well important for what we're thinking about. Because Jesus himself obviously believed that Abraham. And Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. Jesus believed that th those three men had literally existed in the past. He believed then the Genesis account of those three men secondly we see that Jesus spoke there about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as it's often described in the bible Jesus also taught us to pray for that kingdom for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is done in heaven and Jesus said there that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are going to live and going to exist in that kingdom of God as well as others, as Jesus implies there, from the east and the west. Those others include Gentiles, uh, as well as Jews. Uh, so Gentiles, like the centurion here, people who have faith, as, as that centurion did. And the kingdom of God is not going to be limited to faithful Israelites then, which is, in fact, what many Jews of, Israel, of Jesus' day actually thought. Another point really that we can uh, take from this is that because Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had lived and they died almost 2,000 years before Jesus was alive then and spoke these words, then because of that we can see that Jesus also believed that those three men are going to live again. And we're going to look at that uh, and think about more, more about that in a few moments. But here then, in this first example, we've got this, the context of faith, haven't we? Uh, and it's very important that. And it's another reason why Jesus referred to those three men of the past, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because those three men, in the accounts we have of them in Genesis, what can be seen from Genesis is their faith. The faith of those uh, three particular men, especially Abraham himself, who is called the father of the faithful. So what it's telling us and these, these teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is implying that we must believe in the book of Genesis. Another point that comes out from this is how that in Genesis God gave to 
Abraham in particular some very special promises and we don't have time to look in, into this uh, in detail but what we, we will say is the, the culmination of those promises is going to be when the kingdom of God is established over all the earth so if then the book of Genesis if we disregard that book then God's promises are also going to be ignored and to do that well that's taking away the actual basis of Jesus' own teachings well now we'll go to Luke's gospel and chapter 20 because in chapter 20 here Jesus again made uh, reference to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and this time Jesus referred to the resurrection now if we were to look at, at this in more detail in the Bible the resurrection we'd find is, is the time when God is going to raise many people to life again people who have died but he's going to raise them to life those people who, who in their lives have had a knowledge of God and have sought to obey him now in, in New Testament times there was a group of Jews called the Sadducees which denied that there will be such a resurrection of the dead now in chapter 20 then here uh, they came those Sadducees came to Jesus with a question about the resurrection now that question they asked was based on one of the laws that were found in the, in the law that God gave through Moses so just for us to get the, uh, the better context of this we'll read both the question now and the answer that Jesus gave to it so chapter 20 of Luke and verse 28 they came saying master Moses wrote unto us if any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother there were therefore seven brethren and the first took a wife and died without children and the second took her to wife and he died childless and the third took her and in like manner the seven also and they left no children and died last of all the woman died also therefore this is their real question therefore in the resurrection whose wife of them is she for seven had her to wife and Jesus answering said unto them the children of this world marry and are given in marriage but, but they which shall be, shall, sorry, be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage neither can they die any more for they are equal unto the angels and, the children, and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection now that the dead are raised even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob for he is not a God of the dead but of the living for all live unto him Now just before we carry on, just to clarify that Jesus didn't actually mean the worlds as in the planet earth there. Uh, now the New Testament, you see, was written in Greek. And the Greek word for world there is the Greek word aeon. Uh, and that means an era 
or a particular age or period of time. It's the same sense that we would use the phrase the age in which we live. So Jesus is saying there then that the children of this age will they marry and are given in marriage. And we today are in that, in that age. But Jesus contrasts that with another age. And it's the kingdom of God that he's referring to here. It's the age that is going to last forever. And so Jesus said that only people who are worthy are going to obtain that world, that age of the kingdom of God. And when that kingdom does come, then there will be a resurrection of the dead, as Jesus taught here. So those that are worthy, they will be made like the angels of God, as Jesus said. And like angels, they will not marry in that age, and they will live forever. Notice again then, it, he also referred to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Because Jesus was saying there that those men are going to be raised from the dead. Just as God told Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Those three men then were dead even when God spoke to Moses. And yet Jesus said here that God is the God of the living because God is going to raise those three men to life again. And they will yet again praise and honour God. Just as they had done in their uh, lives, in their mortal lives. Now Jesus was saying that God cannot be praised and honoured by the dead. So what he's saying then, that's why there is going to be a resurrection. The time when all those who are accounted worthy by God, they will be rewarded with eternal life. So we can see in how Jesus answered that particular question, we can see that he, Jesus, believed that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob will be raised to life, along uh, with many others as well, in fact. Now there's another occasion when Jesus spoke about marriage in connection with the book of Genesis. So we'll turn back to Matthew's Gospel now, and chapter 19 this time. Jesus was asked another question here. This time it was by the Pharisees. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were the teachers of the Lord of Moses. And it's a question they asked him about uh, marriage. Chapter 19 and verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto Jesus, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So this question was, in fact, to tempt Jesus, it says there. And that question was, is divorce lawful? By, in God's sight, that is. Could divorce be for every cause, they said. Now, it does help us uh, at this point to know a little bit of the background as to the background to this question. Because the, the Pharisees themselves were actually divided on this particular question amongst themselves. Because some Pharisees said that divorce was permissible for almost any kind of reason, for every cause, as it says there. But others, other Pharisees said that divorce could only be for unfaithfulness or unchastity. So, we can see what's happening here with the question. They expected Jesus to, to endorse either one of 
those two views. Actually, we see he didn't agree with either of those views, and he went back straight back to Genesis for his answer, didn't he? In verse, well, verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife? And they twain, those two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, or twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So there's, again, there's some important points that we can take out of this. We can see that Jesus was saying, go back to the teaching of Genesis for your answer. Have you not read? He asked them. And of course they will have read it. They were the students of the law of Moses. So he expected them to know the answer. And he expected them to know and to believe the Genesis record of creation. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Because we can see that Jesus himself, he believed in that creation. Of that special creation by God in six days. However, some today, people today, deny that teaching because they seek to integrate the theory of evolution with creation well here Jesus gave no indication that the six day creation of life on earth should be doubted in fact we can see from his answer that he expected all his followers to believe without question the creation account in Genesis and so Jesus' teaching on marriage confirms exactly how God had intended marriage to be from the beginning when God made the first man and the first woman Adam and Eve so when a man and a woman marry they are joined together in marriage for life Jesus' answer to the Pharisees there was that there is no reason and no lawful reason in God's sight for divorce what God has joined together then man should not break that apart so we, a conclusion we can draw from all these points is, is that the book of Genesis is a foundation. It's a foundation on which Jesus, is, Jesus Christ's uh, teaching is based. If anyone wants to be a follower of Christ, then Genesis has to be fundamental to their discipleship, to their belief. But the Old Testament as a whole, as we've said earlier, is fundamental to discipleship in Christ but of course we're just focusing on Genesis uh, today so we'll remain in, in Matthew's gospel just turn to chapter 23 now Jesus again referred to Genesis and in fact it's Genesis chapter 4 that he refers to here in chapter 23 he referred here to the second son of Adam and Eve to Abel now Jesus here spoke to the scribes and Pharisees again and in fact in this chapter he's, he reprimanded them because even though they said that they uh, obeyed God and were keeping to the law in reality they, they weren't actually doing that and we see this from verse 27 these are Jesus' words he says woe unto you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites for ye are like unto whited sepulchres which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within 
full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So these men, they did appear righteous to people, but it, actually their hearts were not right before God. And Jesus said in verse 31 that their fathers, that is their, uh, those of, of Israel, they'd killed many of God's prophets that God had sent to the nation. That's in the past, of course. And then in verse 32, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. And so he's referring there then to his own death, uh, which, well, when the scribes and Pharisees eventually pressured uh, Pontius Pilate to have Jesus crucified. But let's look at verse 35 now. Because he says that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias son of Barachias whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Now Zacharias was one of those prophets that God had sent to the nation of Israel with words of, of warning to the nation uh, for their disobedience and a message to repent. But they'd killed those prophets and killed uh, them because of what God had told, told them to say. So Zacharias then was one of those prophets and he was killed for speaking the word of God. But we can see from this that Abel also was a prophet of God. Abel was murdered by his own brother Cain. Now Jesus made made that connection between those two men between Abel and, and Zacharias and including also all God's prophets that had been killed because they'd simply brought God's message to those of their own day as we say a message of repentance but the, the nation of Israel didn't want to hear that message and the lessons then that are in the account of Genesis and of, of course in all the Old Testament are very important lessons for anyone who wants to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a warning that Jesus draws out from Genesis, and it's a warning that affects every living person on the earth. And this is in Luke's Gospel again. So Luke chapter 17. Now, these words of Jesus, again, they've been sparked off by the Pharisees because the Pharisees here in chapter 17 they'd wanted Jesus to tell them when the kingdom of God was going to come but after Jesus had addressed the Pharisees he then spoke to his disciples and spoke to them about his return to the earth from heaven which is the time when God's kingdom will be established on earth so Luke chapter 17 and verse 24. For, said Jesus, as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. 
They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, and they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now those two instances there that Jesus referred to are both from the book of Genesis. The first there is when God destroyed mankind with a flood, but he saved Noah and Noah's family in the ark. The second incident there was in the days of Lot, when God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Jesus is saying there that just as it was in the days of Noah and of Lot, it's going to be like that when he returns to this earth. So this is important for everyone then, isn't it? Because, well, because of the reasons that come out of it. Firstly, we see that the flood and the destruction of Sodom were God's judgments for man's wickedness in, in Noah's day and also in Lot's days. Secondly, we see that just as the flood came suddenly in one day and the destruction of Sodom was also in one day, so too Jesus will return one day without warning and it will be too late. Thirdly, that Noah did not know the, the actual day when the flood was going to come. He didn't know until God told him to go into the ark. And neither did Lot know the day of, of Sodom's judgment until two angels came to take him away. And no one knows the exact hour, day or hour of Christ's return. In fact, Jesus said in Mark's gospel that neither he himself or the angels of God know that day. Only God himself knows it. And another thing is that when Jesus does come back, then it's going to be too late to do anything about it. So when God brought the flood and when he destroyed Sodom, there was no opportunity for repentance at that point. So this is a warning about life and death. Jesus warns all who follow him of what will take place one day on this earth. And Jesus, he believed that the flood was a real event. He believed that Sodom had existed and that it had been destroyed. So for us, belief in Christ's teaching and belief in the book of Genesis, well, they go hand in hand, don't they? We can't accept one and, and disregard the other. So what we can just do in the few moments remaining is to actually turn to the book of Genesis. Because how can we not go there having seen that Jesus not only, not only believed in the book of Genesis, but he made, made, based much of his teaching upon it. So Genesis chapter 6, first of all, and this is the well-known the well account of the, of the flood. And as we say, the flood is quite often overlooked these days. It, it tends to be referred only to as, as a story for, for children, perhaps, 
and how that it doesn't really have any relevance today for, for grown adults in this world. But as we've seen, Jesus showed how important it was and is. Because firstly, the flood is relevant to every living person at that time. And that's an understatement, isn't it? Because it was a matter of life and death for them. And so it's relevant for us as well then, isn't it? So let's take as much lesson as we can from it. And I thought, well, let's look at this in, with three simple questions. Where, why, when and how? So why then? Why did God decide to destroy the earth with the flood? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 6 there, man began to multiply on, on the earth. But with that increase of population came an increase in wickedness. Verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And just going to verse 12 as well. And God looked upon the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold... I will destroy them with the earth. So God was indeed grieved at the level of man's wickedness, how that it filled the earth. It's man's heart which was the problem, and it always has been, hasn't it? Man's heart. The, the word of God makes, makes it quite clear that man's nature is sinful, or it's offensive to God. Now in the days of Noah, men's thoughts were continually wicked. They were offensive before God. And in verse 12 there, that verse we've just read, that expression, his way there, really gives the principal reason for man's corruptness. Because the word in the original Bible of the Old Testament, that is, the original Hebrew, is derek. And it's got two senses in which it can be applied. First of all, that word means a road. It means a trodden pathway, but it's also got a figurative meaning. In, in that sense of, uh, of a, a course of life, a road that people go down, we might say, in their lives. And it's in that figurative sense in which it's being used here. This is describing a way of life or a moral law, we might say. And we say, well, what moral law? Well, the Bible is God's word, isn't it? And it's written from his perspective, therefore not from man's perspective. So that way of life then, that the men had corrupted at that time, it was God's way, it was his way, the way that he'd intended man to walk in, but they'd corrupted it. There was only Noah and his family who were walking in God's way and keeping it. So the next question was when, the when question, and it is, that's quite clear, isn't it? It was when God saw that man's wickedness was great in the earth. So it had reached the point at which God was going to intervene. Now this is a lesson that Jesus draws on, isn't it? How uh, that God will yet again intervene, just as he did in Noah's day. And throughout the Bible, that message is the same. How that God does, not, does judge, he does punish those who corrupt his way. He may delay it in mercy sometimes, but he will bring that punishment if repentance has not come 
So God's judgment came suddenly on those who were not expecting it. And Jesus said that that's how it's going to be when God will judge the earth again. And we might say, well, what about mankind now in our days? Well, the word of God is widely disregarded and even ridiculed sometimes, isn't it? So how long will it be before God decides that the earth has reached the point when he is going to intervene? Well, as Christadelphians, we believe the state of the earth now is a sign that we are living very close to the day when Jesus will return. The how question. How did God do it? Well, he did it with the flood, didn't he? But he could have chosen some other way to destroy man. What he did, though, was he used the natural elements, we could say, of what he'd already created. So into chapter 7, of course, that's the record of when the flood actually came. Verse 11 there, they found the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. The power of, of the elements, they are awesome, aren't they? And even today, man is really powerless to defend against real severe weather conditions. Of course, we, we, we've seen these things on television and so forth, haven't we? There's recent years, there's been hurricanes and tsunamis and earthquakes, all these things. These are reminders that nothing can prevent the forces of nature. But there is a lesson from the flood that, there's, that is there for us all. How that God saved Noah by warning him and instructing him to build an ark. Now, if we believe in the book of Genesis, as Jesus did, then this is giving us warning and instruction. So we've had the warning, haven't we? What we now have to do is to do something about it as individuals. And the only way that we can be saved is to do what God has commanded us. Just as there was only one way that Noah could be saved, there is only one way we can be saved, which is that we must take upon us the name of Jesus Christ by belief and baptism into his name. We must then follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, that's the ark in which what that will save us. Because by following Christ... We must turn away from the ways of the world around us. In fact, just as Noah uh, did, he was the only one that found grace in God's sight at that time. Now, Noah, of course, he wouldn't have hid himself away, would he? And in fact, he couldn't have done. He couldn't have spent all his time building a vessel the size of the ark without being at least noticed. And that in itself would have been a witness to any who would care to take notice and to ask him. But as Noah was separate from the ways of men then, that is how disciples of Christ must be as well. But it was Noah's faith, we come back to that critical thing, faith. It was his belief in what God said he was going to do that caused him to build the ark. And turning to chapter 12 of Genesis is the beginning of the record of Abraham. Abraham is another man of great faith. And chapter 12 and verse 1. And the Lord had said unto Abraham, 
Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. <clears throat> and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him. We see then that Abraham left everything that he knew to follow God's commands there. He left his country. He left his family. His whole background really. And in fact at that point Abraham didn't know where he was going. But he believed that God was able to fulfil his promises. And so he put his trust in God that God would keep his promise. Now in the next chapter, chapter 13, after Abraham in fact at that point reached the land, that land that God took him to, it was the land of Canaan as it was then known as. Well in verse 14 of chapter 13, God uh, spoke again to him. Verse 14. The Lord said unto Abraham, after that Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. God promised Abram, that he, Abraham, and his descendants would possess that land forever. Now, we think about that and we have to conclude that that could only mean that Abraham is going to live forever himself. Now, we've seen this, haven't we? We've seen how that Jesus taught that Abraham will be raised from the dead. And that's the resurrection then that Jesus spoke about. He's being it's being referred to here by God that in these promises to, to Abraham. So when all those like Abraham and like Noah in fact before him, they are going to be raised to life. And if they are just to be worthy by Christ, they will be given eternal life in the kingdom of God. And of course the inference there is that Abraham is worthy. So what then will Noah and Abraham think about those people who do not believe in Genesis? More crucially, what will Jesus himself think? Because to believe in what Jesus taught means that we must also believe in Genesis and in all the scriptures. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk Christadelphians.org.uk